This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and for the first time I'm joined by a real Primitive Culture round table. We've got a whole group here. Uh, we've got Tony in person, live in the flesh. It's Hello. Tony Black. Not, not that much in the flesh, that sounds worrying. <laughs> Well, I'm here. Anyway. It's, it's, it's not that kind of evening. Uh, we, we've got a friend of the network, Clara Cook. Hello. <laughs> and we've got Tony Robinson from Continuing Mission. Hello, I'm Tony Robinson from Corpus Christi College, Oxford, and I'm reading economics. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And to start the discussion this evening, basically the, the reason that we've all gathered here today uh, is that we are at the Prince Charles Cinema in London's Leicester Square and we've come for a very exciting event. It's actually the UK premiere, I believe, of the director's extended cut of Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. Um, so we've gathered here to come and uh, enjoy the film, but also we're going to have a little discussion about director's cuts, about the sort of idea of what it means to do a director's cut, you know, what was wrong with the original cut, and basically uh, to, to kick us off on that conversation, really, and to, to get us thinking about um, what a director's cut means, why it's important to us, how we feel about it, Tony Robinson actually managed to get uh, uh, some input on this subject from a very esteemed individual who has given us a quote to kind of kick the conversation off. So I'm going to turn over to you, Tony, and you can uh, tell us what you've got here. Okay. So we were very fortunate to be able to get in touch with Nicholas Mayer himself, the director of the movie, and we asked him if he would like to contribute a quote uh, about this particular version of the movie, um, because the version of the movie is called The Extended Director's Cut, and this is what he had to say, and this is verbatim uh, from the mouth of Nicholas Mayer. Still can't believe this, boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. This is, this is real, guys. This is real, this is real and uh, thank you, Nicholas, for doing this. He said, with the possible exception of Orson Welles' posthumous director's cut of Touch of Evil, as implemented by Walter Murch, it's my opinion that so-called director's cuts are rarely improvements on the original release print of a film. They're inevitably longer, and not untypically self-indulgent. This includes David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia version, or revision. I never intended my own minor tweaks on The Wrath of Khan to be labelled the director's cut, which I regarded as deceptive advertising at best. I am proud of the original film and happily stand by it. At the same time, There were some minor editorial battles I regretted losing to the studio. Example, Peter Preston's relation to Scotty. The restoration of which, I felt, enhanced or clarified certain emotional aspects of the film. In my view, it's hardly worth terming a director's cut. And that's the very words of Nicholas Mayer. So, yeah, so now we're going to watch a movie... Is it a director's cut or is it some marketing ploy by Paramount 
to extract hard-earned cash. I think that's a wonderfully... Anyone who's read Nicholas Meyer's uh, autobiography, memoir, which I've plugged on this podcast about a million times, will recognise that kind of uh, slightly cynical view of the Hollywood filmmaking process. And I think I think there's a lot of truth to it. I mean, I, I, I think compared to a lot of director's cuts, the Ruth of Khan director's cut is quite minor. There's probably only one element, really, that is has a sort of meaning in terms of the story. There's, you know, there's that one significant story element about um, yeah. Scotty's nephew that you know that is definitely you know I would say it, it makes it kind of worthwhile but whether you call that a director's cut or not I guess is sort of an open question it's quite possible the term has become um, just synonymous 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 <laughs> synonymous with uh, different versions of a movie you, you, you get the original film you go home you think that was great a few months later you something happens and the movie is now uh, 15 20 minutes longer because they found extra footage they call it the director's cut it could quite possibly be that the director has had no say in the matter but fan demand public demand makes us want to go see it again but in nicholas's words sorry this um you know bringing peter preston his relationship to Scotty back, back into the foreground, I think, does answer some questions as to why uh, Scotty carried the body of Peter Preston onto the bridge. It does, definitely, which, yeah. which sort of otherwise maybe seems very dramatic but slightly random, perhaps. And I think a lot of people have said, you know what, yeah, exactly, why is he on the bridge? Why isn't he taking him <laughs> yeah. to sick bay where he could get some yeah. treatment, you know? Why, yeah. is, why is he so emotionally cut up by Yeah. Him? I know it's yeah. a crewman, I know, you know, yeah. he's good, but why so much this guy and it's kind of interesting I mean you, you know everyone loves the episode Lower Decks for example you know there's this kind of view of like we don't just want to know about the kind of people at the top of the hierarchy I suppose that is a story element that was in there in the script that was about you know about Scotty and about and about his nephew but I suppose partly the fact that it was about Scotty and you expected to care about Scotty, you know, this is something that's always been a bit of an issue with Star Trek certainly with the original series and the original series movies is you know how much do we how much do the other characters, and we see it in Enterprise as well, how much do the other characters kind of get pushed to the sidelines? And I suppose, you know, from that point of view, maybe that was something that, in retrospect, Nick Meyer felt, you know, he should have fought for more as a kind of integral element of the story rather than other people maybe would have seen it as kind of, well, yeah, that's nice, but that's almost, you, you know, that's kind of by the by. The story works without it. And unquestionably, the story works without it because I suppose one of the things that we might want to talk about is there's a big difference between a director's cut of a bad film that makes it a good film and there are a few of those I think and a director's cut of you know a film that is already a fantastic film and is just like Nicholas Meyer said tweaking it really you know sort of adjusting it slightly but you know there wasn't anything wrong with the original cut necessarily I think he was referring to the scene uh, with Peter Preston that he argued from the outset should never have been cut from Mm. the original Mm -hmm. uh, movie to reinsert it and then call the movie uh, a different version or an extended version, he thinks is slightly having you know having you over. It's it's you know it's it's conning you in some way, and I, I don't think he's he's unhappy with it from that point of view. It's conning you. He's conning. <laughs> oh my god! Sorry, it started already. It started already. Yes, indeed. Um, it's interesting you should talk about. Uh, director's cuts containing perhaps more character development for small characters Mm. Um, just because the motion picture they cut out a few very small scenes but kind of key scenes that involved minor bridge characters so like I say minor they're not minor but like in the film they were kind of minor so they they cut out a scene where um, like Nurse Chapel um, treats Chekhov on the bridge when he's been injured no Dr. Chapel she's in MD now sorry Dr. Chapel (laughs) (laughs) and she should be man after all those years Um, and also um, having I think it's Janice Rand um, at some point in the Mm -hmm. transporter room and so they they kind of get completely almost squeezed out of the story in the original um, like theatrical release which is a bit of a shame because I think it makes it seem more like a a Star Trek film that has all of the sort of original Especially characters since they're the you women as well. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, which is unfortunate, yeah, that's, definitely. That's true. I suppose that's the question, though, isn't it? Is it's like, where's the boundary between. You know, almost with something, especially like Rand, where's the boundary between fan fiction and like canon and you know and I think with the films they sort of had that they tried to kind of drop these cameos in from these characters because they were recognisable characters at the same time they're not really contributing anything to the story so 
it's interesting. I, I can sort of see either way on that. I mean, I, I'd say the motion picture is probably the film that, of all the Star Trek films, has benefited the most from its director's cut because the director's cut fixed a lot of problems. And that was a film that was, you know, very rushed. Um, I mean, famously, the print wasn't dry by the time they were sending it out to theatres because it was so rushed getting that film put together. And I think Robert Wise definitely felt like... Not that, not that he had been overruled or not that he had been you know mistreated in the process of making the film but just that he hadn't done his best on it because he hadn't had enough time so in that case it was very much a director coming in and saying look you know if you give me a bit longer I'll kind of uh, smooth the rough edges off this I'll, I'll kind of make a better job of it and definitely in that instance I think they managed to do that it, you know it is a much better film in the director's cut in that well, instance uh, part of the problem with the motion picture um, and the reason it got a bit messy was because they had announced the release date mm way before they had um, you know, begun principal photography or they were finished with the special effects and, and I know through uh, various sources that another problem that arose was the people who were involved in the visual effects on that movie weren't seeing any of the rushes from the actual from the principal photography so they, didn't, they had a hard time matching up um, some of the effects they were creating with the actual footage and uh, it was a real difficulty why there was no cross communication is anybody's business but that really resulted in a very messy movie being released in December 7th 1979 <laughs> I said it in that voice for no reason whatsoever just because you could yes you could. and it sounded dramatic yeah yeah. well it's interesting I mean I've never I don't I was saying to Tony earlier, I, I don't think I've ever seen say, the... Say, when you say when Tony... When I say Tony, I, I mean my Tony. My, oh, <laughs> Tony Black. Oh, and not, oh, oh, not that you're not my Tony, but, you know, <laughs> my regular Tony. Car, have you got a shovel? He's going to need it. Regular Tony and... Regular Tony and, and, and occasional and guest, special, guest special, Tony. Special walk, VIP guest yeah, Tony. Exactly. Walk on Tony. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But anyway, um, <laughs> we were talking earlier. I don't. I'm not sure that I've ever actually seen the original cut of the motion picture. And I was saying to Tony, my Tony, uh, <laughs> earlier when it came to the from there. And, and it's not. I have to say, of all the Star Trek films, it's probably the one I've seen the least. I suspect. And when it came to doing the from there to here rewatch, I was kind of torn because I'd bought the Blu-ray set of all the movies, so I had this nice high-res version of the original cut of the film. And then I had my old, one of the earliest DVDs I think I ever bought was a, D a DVD of the um, of the uh, director's cut of the motion picture but in standard definition and so I had this kind of you know to and fro which one am I going to watch and in the end I decided to watch the director's cut because I kind of figured well okay it might not pop and look great on the TV but at the same time I think this is going to be the better movie can, I, can any of you think of an example where a director's cut has actually made the movie worse well famously Apocalypse Now Redux <laughs> <laughs> made the movie worse. I mean, I'm not suggesting the wrath of but Khan. Actually, I, I, I think controversially, I, I maybe. Just, oh, I've great I've things. Go on, Have go you? On. Well, yeah. I was just saying, in terms of Star Trek, I actually think The Undiscovered Country possibly makes the movie worse. And I only say that because I, I had always assumed that the director's cut was the better version of that, and I always liked the fact that it had René Aubergenois in it. I liked this kind of extra element of the story. But actually then, and it was only from doing the From There to Here rewatch, I went to see it at the cinema, and I went to see an old print of the original theatrical cut in the cinema and then I ended up watching it I don't know why I ended up watching it twice but anyway I did I ended up watching the director's cut at home and I was really surprised watching the director's cut at home I was like these scenes actually are not necessary this doesn't add to the story this doesn't help the flow of the story it yes it's it's kind of it's nice in the sense of a deleted scene is nice but I actually think they made the right decision in the first place and it's not a big it doesn't ruin the film it's not like it's not enough to make a huge impact but I think it actually does damage the pacing slightly when the idea of directors cuts as different type different movies different versions of the movies mm. uh, came out I remember being extremely excited that there was a director's cut version of Close Encounters of the Third Kind coming out and Clara asked earlier did a director's cut make a movie worse or better? And in my opinion... Yeah. Clara is the, furiously nodding. She is furiously <laughs> yeah. nodding, yeah. The director's cut version uh, of Close Encounters was terrible. Uh, I went to the cinema 
wondering what did Roy Neary see when he walked up the ramp into the alien spaceship. You see in the original version his face is lit up and he's staring in wonder mm. at something fantastic and we, we don't really get to see what he saw. Um, in the director's version, uh, cut version... It's a dinosaur. <laughs> it was Barney. <laughs> and he you know, came along, he's all purple and everything. And, and, uh, he went, surprise. <laughs> yeah, you didn't expect this, did you? Uh, no, but the point was, um, so now you see what Roy Neary saw. And it was just awful. It was just mm. lots of little boxes opening and little lights going on and little people staring out of windows. And was it worth it? No, it wasn't, because they cut other stuff out just to add that scene in. Mm. And it was just awful. It was just But terrible. what that's done is I guess that's fundamentally changed a massive component of the film mm. in the sense that now you take away it's like taking away that element of mystery it's taking away that element of like you say wonder it's taking away that key essential element at the end in which was what what is what is he seeing what what has put that look on his face when a film does that when it fundamentally changes an emotional reaction or, or a key point to do with the wonder of the film then you've got a problem and also I mean that's one of the key elements of film is actually what you bring to it I mean famously I can't think what the, I can't remember what it was, but you know, in early film there was there was this example of the woman who is is just doing a black. The director tells the actress just think of nothing, and and that is the most moving, powerful moment in the film because the film constructs you know through context and through juxtaposition and cutting and so on. The audience think they know what that person is experiencing and they project that onto them. And it's actually the actress isn't isn't emoting; they're not doing anything. Mm. And in a way, you know, one of the most powerful things about film is what isn't shown as well as what is shown. I mean, you know, even like, you know, say Jurassic Park, for example, the Jurassic Park films. Jurassic Park films work much better when it's dark and you can't really see the dinosaurs and you kind of see snatches of things. Or Jaws, again, you know, looking at Spielberg, you know, Jaws is very effective because you don't see the shark. As soon as you see the shark, it's slightly ruined because the shark looks like a plastic shark. You know, up till that point, it really works because your imagination is constructing all of this stuff that the filmmakers can't generate. And I actually think even though these days we have amazing CGI, we have kind of, you know, photorealistic effects to a certain extent, I still think you lose something, you know, even if it looks sort of tangibly real, there is still something that is lost by not having that, that element that was a key part of film. If, you know, you don't see everything, you, you, know, you see some of it and you project a lot of it yourselves. I think editing is really important, especially in something like science fiction, because often you do have a lot of action in science fiction, you have a lot of, there's a lot of story to tell in a very short space of time, so you've got to edit quite cleverly. Um, and you've got a question a little bit, if a director's cut is, um, sort of the director showing you the art that he wanted to deliver to the audience or whether it's actually just overblown sort of stuffed entertainment it, certain films are more entertainment type films and I think they need more heavy, heavy editing because they've got to keep you engaged mm. um, and other films like I'm just thinking of like you know Truffaut or um, who directed The Seventh Seal Bergman? Bergman, yeah. And uh, like, I can imagine a director's cut of an like, Ingmar Bergman film would be... I mean, they're quite slow anyway, really, aren't they? I mean, I, I can imagine... With car would, chasing. Would, <laughs> right in the middle of it, yeah. 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 It was a horse and car chase. <laughs> I suppose the other question is, is the, director, is the director always the right person to do the cut? Because I would say of all the Star Trek films, the one the film that needs recutting the most is Star Trek Nemesis. Because we've seen, yeah. we've seen the deleted yeah. scenes, we've seen that that film could have been a lot better if it had been edited better. Well, we, we and they had a hack director who was a you know a good editor but a good editor in a very kind of frenetic action fast-paced way who didn't have any interest in the franchise didn't have any interest in those characters and was not the person you know that may be his director's cut but the director shouldn't have been given the final cut on that someone else should <laughs> anyone else should have been given the final cut on that film and actually you know if someone went back and, and recut that film based on just what they shot and you you know cut it differently it would be an immeasurably improved I mean it still might not be a brilliant film but it would be a much less awful film um, and you know similarly with Star Trek 5 there's I don't know if you've seen there's a online there's a fan edit of Star Trek 5 which cuts it down to a kind of three minutes faux, no no it's not it's like a 50 minute original Star series episode. Oh, okay, yeah. and it actually it, it's, it works much better yeah, as yeah. a kind of you know they cut out a load of 
stuff and they keep Excuse in as me. much of the best stuff I as possible. I just can't need a ship. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and it kind of works. If you see it as a kind of hokey original series episode that's a bit mad and weird uh, but has some charming moments in it, it kind of works, you know, and it's short and you can enjoy it, you know. The best that line film in needs Star Trek away. 5, and I would, go to, I, would, I would repeat this everywhere, wherever that sh- movie is shown, I would always say... Not in front of the Klingons. <laughs> because that just brings, you know, come on. But, uh, best line. That was a good moment. There were, good mo- there were good moments in that film, but it's mm. a film of, you know, and there were good moments in Nemesis, but they. I, I would know. love to see a recut of um, Star Trek V. I think it mm. deserves, of all the movies, because I, I don't think the storyline was particularly bad. I think it suffered from a writer's strike right in the middle. Mm. I don't think Shatner was particularly bad as a director. I just think a lot of elements came about that screwed it up for him right at that time. And he didn't need it, and he got a lot of negative publicity, negative press, and typical Shatner. No, it wasn't typical Shatner. He he could have done a great job, uh, but he was let down by a lot of elements. So maybe somebody somewhere will take that movie and redo it. It does feel overly long for the amount of words that are said during the movie. Like the script feels quite mm. sparse to me, mm. and there seems to be these like pregnant pauses between things that people say. Mm. I feel like perhaps they could have edited down the conversations so they were a little bit more punchy. So, Clara, <laughs> but, what are you trying yeah. to tell us? What do, you, what do you expect if you let William Shatner direct a film? What, what do you, you know? Give me. It's going to be like ninety-five percent pauses, isn't it? Risk. <laughs> is our business (laughs) but I guess this is one of the things that ties into this idea of director's cuts is about length because often the director's cuts are punishingly long I mean you you know I I mentioned Apocalypse Now I've never seen the director's cut of Apocalypse Now because I view watching the original Apocalypse Now which is a you know fantastic film and a great work of art and so on as a bit of an ordeal and the idea of watching a version of that that's even longer just fills me with horror you know but but a lot of um, no you you can disagree no I don't disagree with you I actually yeah. think it's, a, it's an arduous film but yeah. it's interesting I read that Francis Ford Coppola originally showed it to test audiences the, origi- the first original version that was quite long yeah. and, the, audi- and he, the audiences didn't react favourably to certain parts of it Right. and he describes himself as shy at that point and so he took some of that stuff out mm-hmm. um, and then he said years later he thought that audiences had changed mm-hmm. so I wonder if that's even a possible like, well, option here like if audiences change over the course of however many years of cinemas and mm. films, you know, becoming more popular in certain ways, do then the actual original theatrical releases of films become um, well, less maybe successful? with DVDs? Well, interesting. I mean, I if, the, if, the director had a particular, if the director had a particular point mm. and said, look, this is my vision, this is the story from A to B, and this is what I'd like to see on the screen, mm. but the studio say, no, we need it to be, you know, two hours and... 10 minutes long, not 2 hours and, and 45 minutes long, so something's got to go. Well, whatever you cut out of that movie is is, is going to ruin it. It's going to ruin the arc of the story or it's going to ruin the storyline. So the director had a particular vision and he's now, well, he, the studio's paying him his salary, so what's he going to say? Okay, I'll go with it, thanks for the check. But years later, as you say, Clara, the audiences uh, demand a little bit more, the more explanation. And an opportunity arises to say, hey, I, I, I can show you now what I intended. But there's also an element of length that, you know, in a just purely commercially, often studios want films to be shorter because you can fit more screenings in in a cinema yeah. in a day. You know, there are commercial constraints on a film's length that do not apply once you get into DVDs, for example. And I do think, like, a lot of it has to do with once... once di- You know, when you had VHS, OK, yes, you could release an ex- you could release a new edition of a film and people could watch that instead, and that did happen. But I think once you get DVDs and you get the idea of alternative versions of things, you get deleted scenes, you get extras, you get this whole kind of culture which sort of emphasises the idea that the, the film itself is not the only thing that you're buying when you buy that product it kind of, it plays into this idea that there might be different versions, that there might be alternative ways of seeing this film. There might have been, you know, the various films that didn't quite get made. But I think also there's this question, you, you know, what? how much do we value the director? I mean, 
you know, I said, for example, Star Trek Nemesis directed by a hack director. You know, you know, I don't respect the director. I don't know if anyone else does. The views of Duncan do not necessarily respect them. Sorry. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> but, yeah, they, but they probably do respect Other the views of most Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, you know, there are good directors and bad directors. But there's also, you know, why is the... With all artists, people have a, you know, maybe a time of peak creativity often and then decline. And, you know, often someone going back to something that they made 20 years ago... Yes, they might want to change things about it, but is that necessarily the right thing? I mean, with Star Wars, we have George Lucas endlessly going back and fiddling with those films and, cha- you know, not I want anymore. to change this, I want to change... Well, OK, maybe not anymore. But, it, but do you know what I mean? Like, it is, is, is the George Lucas, who was like a guy in his 30s in 1970-something or whatever and a bit of a visionary filmmaker, necessarily a worse director than the, the George Lucas who's in his 60s and, you, you know, well, obsessing over say, something he made a long time ago. A lot of people you know? would say he got, he got worse. Yeah. But then it depends on the people around him. It depends on the, on the situation, you know. Mm. And, and you could say the same about Ridley Scott. A lot of people would say the same about Ridley Scott. And mm. his, his, his Blade Runner is a great example of a film that was absolutely improved by a director's cut. Mm. And I come at this as somebody fairly new to Blade Runner. And um, when I watched the original uh, theatrical cut <laughs> recently, I was pilloried on Twitter like I, I had like tons of people going what? by me amongst other people <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah. what are you doing you're watching the wrong one that's not Blade Runner yeah. and then yeah. so I watched, <laughs> I watched I couldn't believe the vitriol um, and then I watched the final cut as it's called and it's definitely it takes away things that's that's the crucial thing mm. that it doesn't add so stuff. are you it takes stuff the away. voiceover version or the non I'm, I'm talking about the, the one that everyone hates and I I wouldn't say I hate, but I'd say I'd, I agree it's worse. He's the one with the voiceover. Yeah. He's the one with the drip-fed uh, explanation. Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford hating doing all yeah. that. But it's and then you take it away, and it's much more ambig- ambig- ambiguous. And then you have the ending as well. Which is interesting. Which is interesting and much more ambiguous than the original yeah. happy, you know, it's all wrapped up in a bow ending. Although allegedly, I've heard the French audiences understood the theatrical cut. Apparently only in France did, French, did audiences take the theatrical cut and interpret the final ending from it. That really? basically they and they read it as subtext. That's what I've heard. They That's read it as subtext. They everything watched it. sounds exactly. better in French. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, and you know, and they're existentially troubled, and yeah. you know, they they just they just they because they, they thought that thematically they were because, because they understood. I mean, this is this is like the Blade Runner podcast, but they understood that thematically there was a kind of connection between Deckard doing this job, which is kind of meaningless uh, and inhuman and soulless, and these people who are literally not human and don't have souls or whatever. And so they made that connection on a kind of um, as a reading of the film that no one else picked up on until you got like the director's I mean Blade Runner had like seven or eight cuts I mean some of which were called director's cuts and Ridley Scott had nothing to do with them Um, so you know and and that's why they have this idea of the final cut which is quite a nice idea for anyone who's concerned about George Lucas or people like that going back and tinkering endlessly and and, you know never being satisfied unless the director is dead you know I suppose calling something the final cut is about as good as you can get in terms of like saying right watch this one you know (laughs) Tony yeah exactly Yeah. I, think yeah, I learned my lesson big time. I think part of the problem with movies uh, being re-released as director's cuts is that there's a huge demand for uh, more of that movie. What could yeah. you have done if you if something else had been left in? And huge pressure on directors to think, well, hang on a minute, did we do something right? Did we do something wrong? And so... So you end up getting another version of the same movie due to public demand, which doesn't make the movie better or necessarily even worse, but it puts the director under an enormous amount of pressure to produce something they hadn't intended to produce in the first time. So, so we get these movies, and, and, and now because a movie has come out with a director's cut, now we have these expectations that hey, I'll watch this movie, but I know in six months' time we're going to get this other version and it'll have all the deleted scenes and it'll make more, much more sense. Mm. And it might last for four hours, but hey, it'll be worth it. So, uh, so it's a kind of hypocrisy and a kind of a, a dishonest expectation and it kind of is disingenuous to the uh, director's original work. Mm. They manage uh, to produce with what they're given what the final uh, cut should be, and um, and they're happy, and they sign it off, and they go away, and 
live on their yacht in the Bahamas. <laughs> <laughs> They're lucky, yeah. Well, I think we saw that even with um, the X-Men Days of Future Past. I'm pretty sure when that film came out in the cinema, there was talk about this longer cut that was going to be released on DVD. And then it evidently it was released on DVD and everyone said, oh, it was better. It all made sense because you understood why. I can't remember why Anna Pekin was in one scene and not in another. Or You, you know, it's like it resolved certain problems. And I suppose there is... I mean, I think we've... I feel like we've talked about this before, this idea of like... What, this time loop episode. Uh, starting to turn into time loop episode, because I can't remember if I talked with you or I talked with someone else while you were away. Anyway, but this idea of like what... Because I think the, the, the idea of the deleted scene and what is the role of the deleted scene and do you, you know, when you watch a film with deleted scenes, do you want to incorporate them? Do you want to kind of imagine you've incorporated them? I mean, The Measure of a Man, actually, there's a version on the Blu-ray which has all deleted scenes dropped back in. That's basically a, you know, extended cut. But I think, you, you know, what does it mean to include all this extra material? And I think what I'm thinking of is with the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies, there were those comics, right? And the, the first movie, the 2009 movie, I felt when I, I... Every time I've watched it, I sort of felt, well, it doesn't... That movie doesn't really work for me the way that it does for a lot of people because I think it doesn't really make sense. I don't really understand what's going on. And then I read the comics, and I was like, oh, OK, I understand this. I understand where Nero's coming from. I sort of get the backstory. But I have a real reservation about that. I'm kind of like, well, if that's part of the story, that should be in the film. You know, it's no good saying, yeah, you can go and read the comic, and then you'll understand the film because most people aren't going to go and read the comic. No. Well, and I think that... Yes, you have to cut stuff for time. Yes, there's this, you know, there are these questions about like you don't want it to be bloated or whatever. But the danger is that if you say with that X Men example, if what was being said was yes, there's this film in cinemas, it's fun, go and watch it, but wait six months and you can watch the version that actually makes sense of what's going on. That to me seems like a bit of a flaw because that's basically saying yeah, we're releasing something that doesn't make sense. Mm. I think they do this with TV shows as well. So I'm thinking of, like, for instance, the X-Files, you know, that they, they released the X-Files. I suppose the X-Files finished, and then they released a whole bunch of comics to sort of carry mm. on the story. Mm. Um, but recently um, I watched Stranger Things 2, which is on Netflix, um, and I came to work and I was discussing it with my work colleagues, and quite a few of my work colleagues said, I feel like they filmed a lot more, and they, cut out, they, cut, they must have cut some stuff out of it, because there were certain scenes that didn't seem to flow with other scenes, and there were certain episodes that seemed much more filled with events and mm. episodes that had less in them. Um, and I thought that was interesting. I mean, I'm not sure if that's actually true, but it's it's now now people are even thinking that when they go and see something, they have the assumption well, that things are being cut. Yeah. Even they're always going to film are. scenes that they hope will end up in the in the finished edited version uh, because they have to. Um, they end up on the cutting uh, the floor, and um, and uh, it's a shame. But that's just you know that's just the way it is. But where, but where do you draw the line between what? should be in there like you're saying in order to make sense mm. and what is cut for time reasons for money reasons for things like that I mean to go back to the Wrath of Khan arguably adding that scene in with Peter Preston adds that level of characterization. it doesn't change the film it doesn't it doesn't really particularly change the story you, you don't have to have any of that subplot in there but without that context of knowing that it's not just a random crewman who's died at the hands of this attack, knowing that it means something to somebody in that in that crew, mm. it adds an extra level, an extra dimension to what you're watching that enhances the whole thing. So I I, I think it makes sense to put that back in there, mm. whether or not it was cut in the first place for the right reasons is is, is the question. Well, that, you know, it. was it was it all? Did he always intend that to be in there? Did he then change his mind at the last minute? Did he, does he regret it? Well, it's things like that. It's the question, and you can ask that about a lot of films. In my opinion, the idea of Peter Preston and the relationship with Scotty and the whole idea of it is almost super, superfluous because, in reality, it doesn't make any sense to the storyline. The storyline is Khan has, um, you know, uh, taken control of the Reliant. He's figuring out a way of uh, trapping Kirk and the Enterprise, and um, or he's discovered Kirk as an admiral, and uh, he's enticing the Enterprise to come in, and he's going to get him for, uh, you know. And, and this idea of somebody on board the Enterprise who just happens to be related to the chief engineer uh, gets hurt and killed, and it ends up being a thing. It's almost... It didn't even have to be there. It could have been any crew member that Scotty might have been concerned about. Yeah, it could have been. The fact that he was related is kind of... 
it, it's, I think the what ultimate point is that it's well, yeah, it's, it's trying to show that there are consequences and stakes for you know what this what Khan is doing. You know, it's not just oh, he's tapped them shields up, a bit of a blast, and then we're fine. Somebody's died. But you're right. Does, well, doesn't necessarily people, have to be. Lots his, of people his, on the Enterprise died in that sequence, and. But we don't know them. We don't know who they are. Well, and it's shorthand, isn't it? By saying it's Scotty's cousin, it's uh, Scotty's nephew. It's shorthand for saying care about this person. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. a real person, not just a for, number. For, you know, for right or wrong, like, no, I agree with you. It doesn't have to necessarily be his nephew. Yeah, it, it could have been, you know, his protégé or yeah. you know, or a, or a Yeoman yeah. Ran type yeah. character. And there's no there's no building to that. You know, he's not in the, the motion picture, or he's not no. in particularly really in early earlier scenes, maybe in one or two. So it's not a big big thing. But I think the whole purpose is to add that level of threat. You know, in theory, any of them could could somebody could die. Obviously, at the end, somebody does die. Yeah. In inverted commas, but it, it you know. Yeah. yeah so it, it also it sets that up. I mean, so that's, that's another way of looking at it, isn't it? It's, it sets up the loss of someone that's very close to you. Someone's you know, it's a sort of prefiguration in a sense. And didn't they didn't they market the film by suggesting that someone was going to die? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Could have oh, yeah. been a trick. Could have yeah. been a, a you know yeah. a red herring. Yeah. Oh, well, second red herring. Yeah. Halfway through, yeah, yeah, they're yeah, like, yeah. oh yeah, it's 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 got his nephew fine. Yeah. Yeah. Which is Spock. the kind of which is exactly what that's what? exactly the J.K. Rowling trick, isn't it? You yeah. Because every time they released a new Harry Potter book, they'd say, "Oh, you know, one of the characters is going to die," and uh, you, you know, it would always turn out to be. I mean, uh, spoilers for anyone who hasn't read Harry Potter or, or watched them or whatever. Okay, I know like Dumbledore Harry, died, and that was a big deal. You all but other than, no, but other than that, they were they were usually usually the ex, usually the expectation. I care. No, 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 you whatever. I mean. <laughs> I care a bit, uh, but the expectation is that WQs do not necessarily represent the Trek of Him Network. <laughs> I'm going to get sacked soon if I'm not careful. The expectation is that people um, is, is that you think it's going to be a major character who dies, and then it's you know uh, um, Ron Weasley's brother, and it's like okay, that's sad. You know, I, I know. Okay, Clara's upset by it. <laughs> But at the same time, it's not that sad. It's not as sad as what you're expecting. It's not as sad and as that, Hermione that, or Harry dying. Exactly, no, no, no. exactly. Yeah. And that's what dead. we were expecting. You know. No, it's Fred. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. You don't even know which one it was, do you? No, it's really George. Welcome to the Harry Potter <laughs> <laughs> podcast on the Drag MM Network. Um, but, you know. Patronus <laughs> culture. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Have any of you um, read the novelisation of The Wrath of Khan? Because Peter plays mm. quite a... Uh, Peter Preston plays quite a... I wouldn't say prominent, but there's a backstory in it. Um, and there's a backstory about his mother and Scotty and how Sc- Scotty's sister doesn't like the idea of Peter being in Starfleet. She kind of makes Scotty promise to take care of Peter, which makes his death a lot more serious. And that Peter and Savick themselves have a friendship... Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that itself also means that Savick's much more affected by Peter's death and then equally doubly affected by Spock's death because she's lost two people that she cares about. Um, so, so, in some respects, this is the author's cut. So, yeah, I don't know if the, I don't know if the book <laughs> yeah. was written. Isn't it? The book was probably written after the movie, yeah, I assume. I mean, well, not always. But often, not, the, or the book just... can incorporate stuff that is in the, script, in the script and not yeah, in the yeah, final yeah, film. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. And that's the thing, isn't it? Is that it can, you, know, you do get that sometimes with those kind of ancillary things. Novelization. They, so they, they get a script. Whatever, Sometimes exactly, and they pick up something that ends up being changed. When, or, yeah. when they were having it's a funeral for Peter Preston, did Captain Kirk say, of all the souls, his was actually the most human? <laughs> <laughs> I think Spock would be really offended by that. Yeah. Every time Kirk says no, that, Spock, I'm like, Spock, would, Spock doesn't want to be human. Spock's <laughs> yeah. not dead at this point. Yeah. That's true, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right. You can get away with it. it. You can say what you like at someone's funeral, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> but but that but that thing about the book that is interesting because it does it does make you wonder was was that in, in a original screenplay? And you know there were mm. there were quite a lot of screenplays yeah. written for the Rapid You know it was it was you know cobbled together by a lot of different things. You know was there a screenplay where there was more of that done? Mm. But then that, if that had been in the film, it would have it would have really bogged the film down. You know, ultimately, wouldn't it? I mean, it, it, what, why are we focusing so much on Scotty's nephew, who we've never seen before? Why, why do we care? But, it, but, do, but we should care for Scotty when he dies, and that, that's, yeah. that's the key. Yeah. That's the, it's not yeah. in a way. It's not Peter we, we're caring about. No. It's Scotty. And I think it's we don't need that much to care. I mean, I think in the director's cut that we're watching today, it's enough for you to care. Do you know what I mean? It's enough yeah. to establish yeah. that he's his nephew. Scotty's a nice guy. He cares about his nephew. His nephew dies. That's awful. Do you know what I mean? You don't need a lot. 
I mean, you, you don't need all that. I mean, I want to say that backstory is no, interesting, yeah. or whatever, but you don't yeah. need all that yeah. backstory in yeah. order to invest in in that because. But you're right. I mean, you know that 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 is an element like that. We don't really care about Peter Preston. We care about Peter Preston because we care about Scotty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Just in terms of, of, of this idea, um, it, it turns Scotty to drink. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think he'd been turned to drink uh, a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think he's all right. Got that down. I was just going to say, in terms of like what's, I mean, we talked about good directors, uh, cuts, we talked about different options of like, what, you know, is something missing or whatever. I mean, one of the, uh, you know, we talked about Star Wars, the idea of going back to something and adding to it or, or rejigging it or whatever. I would say the Lord of the Rings films are an example of something where. The theatric, both cuts work quite well, generally speaking. I mean, you go to the cinema, you watch the theatrical cut, it feels like a complete movie. It doesn't feel like there's anything missing. You don't feel like something doesn't make sense or like they've left something in the comic or they've left something on the cutting room floor or whatever. Then you go and watch the extended cut and you're like, oh, yeah, this is kind of interesting and that's, you know, that's great. So I think it is possible to kind of balance those two things. But those films, I think, were made with the expectation that they were going to release those longer versions yeah. certainly I mean maybe that wasn't the case of the first one but certainly you know once they get into them and then they get into the Hobbit films and you know keep doing it they know that's always going to happen they know they're always going to shoot too much and they're always going to create two versions of that film both of which basically work but at different lengths well in this very cinema we're sitting um, they, which they, is they, the, the Prince Charles cinema in, in London's uh, Leicester Square. Fantastic. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> um, for those, for our global listeners. For our global listeners. Yeah. Um, they did recently a Lord of the Rings extended cut mm. back-to-back screening. Mm. And mm. I've done some of the overnight screenings. They did it when I did a James Bond six-film screening overnight, wow. which was great fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, believe me, if you if you ever get the chance to do one of these We meet again, Mr. Bond. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't we meet just... In just two hours ago? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, but we meet again, we meet Mr. Again. Bond. But they did, they did all... All they three, did all, three. all six? They did, all, well, yeah. well, God, that's the thing. But they yeah. did all three. Um, and that would have been roughly, I think, about twelve hours with with a, with a break in between. So I, I reckon they're about four hours each, aren't they? Roughly. I, I thought they were. Three. Are they three? They're, are they the theatricals are three, and then the, the, the next half an hour. The extended ones. They're about eight. three and a half hours, four hours. I don't know. I did about one of those marathons they're, they're at a friend's you. party once, but I have to. Say I fell asleep halfway through the. Oh, well, there's, there's no <laughs> so way. Halfway you... through the two towers. But this thing... I fell asleep in them. I had a nap basically. I had a nice <laughs> nap in the middle, and then woke up for the well, end. Like, in Rohan. Yeah, you know. Rohan, yeah. <laughs> but nothing had changed. Yeah. <laughs> but sure, surely that's surely that. And obviously, you wouldn't do them twelve hours on the bags normally. But surely, mm-hmm. four hours a, p- a piece is too long. Even, even, yeah, even, yeah. For some, even for something like Lord of the Rings, which is so yeah. dense and complicated, you know, um, that doesn't beat the, the top one. They're doing here at the end of no, uh, November all seven seasons of Game of Thrones back to back, right? What, in one night? In, no, in four nights, right? Yeah, when do you eat? You, you, do you don't. You don't. <laughs> you don't, right? They, they are honestly showing them. Stay here. Yeah, you stay here for four Days. I'm not. I'm not even. I'm not making this up. <laughs> right? I mean, I don't watch Game of Thrones, but are there like some crap episodes that you can skip and you know go and yeah, sleep pro- or probably. eat? Or, you well, know? But the problem is, you will lose track of where you are if you yeah, go I don't think there's crap episodes. Well, no, no, no. Yeah, and there's none. There's some you could miss, but you'd still like. No, you've got to do it, right? Yeah, <laughs> watching people die again, again, and again. That's really traumatic, really depressing. Yeah. So yeah, there you go. That, no, that's the sex, old... death, sex, death, sex, death, sex, death. Dragons. <laughs> yeah, you just sleep through the death. Wake up for the sex. Wake up for the sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, it, that, I mean that. that, that uh, we're getting slightly off topic in terms of But it, but it, it's that it's that whole thing. If you're surely. listening, uh, Nicholas Mayer, you, you're probably. <laughs> Have, yeah, uh, you, you think you think that two minute extra scenes a lot. Mm. Yeah, uh, they've uh, turned us off by now. Does does like does that? Is there such a thing as a too long? <laughs> Is there such a thing as too long cut? I mean, I, I, I think yeah. that could be. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah so, definitely. Yeah. There have been rumours, haven't there, that Nicholas Meyer, as well as working on Star Trek Discovery, is working on a secret Khan miniseries. Oh, yeah. Which obviously ties into this idea, you know, what is missing... I mean, Nick Meyer says in his quote to, that he sent to us that, you, you, you know, he views himself as tinkering with this film. It's not... He's not reinventing it. But that suggests that there is something left in that story that he thinks is still worth developing you know that 
he hasn't kind of left that storyline behind in a way. Well, we don't find out what happens to Khan um, and his followers um, when they're stuck on the planet. What's, what planet City Alpha. City Alpha. Five. 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 <laughs> this we, is the we, 2001. We're going back 16 years. <laughs> we're partying like it's 1999. <laughs> Sorry, Clara, what were you so, saying? Yeah, just that um, I read that um, on the internet that there was actually a, like an early draft or scene where um, Khan actually had a small child, either it was his child or grandchild or something, that existed um, and that the small child. Um, was on the Botany Bay when Chekhov arrived and that's one of the first things they saw with the baby. The child would have been the son or daughter of the lady of the Enterprise. Marla McGuire. Yeah. Marla McGuire's? Is that her name? She sounds like a superhero. Or like a grandchild. (laughs) Marla McGuire's. Historical (laughs) research woman. (laughs) No, great, great, great granddaughter (laughs) of MacGyver. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Similar like that. <laughs> and at the very end of uh, the Wrath of Khan, when the Genesis um, device explodes, one of the first, last shots was, was going to be a baby crawling on the transporter pad um, and then touching the Genesis device as it explodes, which is a lot darker and also mm. presents Khan's family and Khan's really, you know, group of people slightly more sympathetic. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? And, there's, and I suppose there is that theme of rebirth and children. And, and there was that theory that... Uh, Joachim, is that his name? One of Khan's yeah, guys yeah, yeah, might yeah, be related yeah, to him. Yeah. You know, and, uh, I suppose, yeah. yeah, one of the, I guess one of the things that these direct cuts play into is, you know, and fan fiction plays into, and these comics play into, and all these things play into, is this idea of what is there beyond the film. You know, is the finished product all there is? And, you know, sometimes that plays in because there's something that we're not happy with. I mean, uh, Tony and I have talked before about the... Um, Ladies it's and not- gentlemen, if you're here for 2001 A Space Odyssey, please take your seats in the downstairs screen as the film will resume in a couple of minutes. I feel like I've heard this like, announcement kind of, before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like we're recording an airport. Yeah, otherwise, <laughs> otherwise yeah. Hal will be closing the podcast <laughs> and you will not get it. <laughs> Tony and I have talked about um, when we were talking about action movies. We talked about the uh, Alien 3. And not a director's cut, a, dire- a, a director cut that the director was not in any way involved in but you know I watched that cut having seen the original one many years before and really loved it I thought I thought it was you know really transformed the film so I suppose there's that kind of question of first of all you know who is, is it is it just the director who can improve something because obviously there are other people who can come in and say actually this thing was missing or this thing could have been done differently but also what is our kind of interest beyond the the film itself, beyond the thing that we've been given, you know, we want to know about what was happening beforehand, we want the prequel, we want the information about this, we want the deleted scenes, we, we want more, 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 we want all this kind of extra stuff in a way, um, and that maybe is part of the way that we consume film and the way we consume culture these days is that we, you know, it's not, we don't... This is we don't, the final call for 2001 <laughs> Space Odyssey, please take your seats, the film is about to resume, thank and I, you. And ironically, it's, it's not the final cut and that's that's really the point other than you know Ridley Scott saying it's the now now this is the final cut that's the question when we go and see a film at the cinema is that a finished work of art that we're seeing or is it kind of a work in progress is it a kind of starting point for conversations is it a kind of or for imaginations or for kind of seeing where these characters can go or whatever um, and obviously Star Trek is unusual in the degree of fan fiction and kind of uh, you know, we talk now about extended universes, don't we, in Star Wars and Star Trek and so on. You, you, you know, the, the thing, the, the, the product, the piece of art itself, or whatever it is, is not the be-all and the end-all. There's more around it. Um, and I suppose all of that kind of ties into this idea that nothing, seems like nothing is ever really finished, you know. Um, I mean, in ten years' time, if Nick Meyer decides he wants to go back and fiddle with his film again... Who's going to stop him? 2001 Space Odyssey is resuming right now. Please take your seats. Fortunately, Stanley Kubrick is not in a position to recut 2001 Space Odyssey. (laughs) And there are are deleted scenes that could be reinserted. We just, uh, a couple of weeks ago, they found 18 minutes of footage that uh, hadn't been included. Just leave it alone. The difficulty is... I mean, 
No, that is the defining movie of yeah. my life. Oh, 2001 yeah. Space yeah. Odyssey. We need to do a... A 2001... A primitive culture. Definitely. No, I'd love that. Yeah. I, the, okay, this is my confession. I've never seen 2001 Space Odyssey. You know what? I had until last year. <laughs> really? Yeah. Do you need okay, to watch well, it? Okay, well, the four of us should get together. <laughs> yeah. We should have done it today, we'll, frankly. We'll, 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 but we'll come back again. Next time we're doing it, we'll come back and we'll do it. And you, you can tell us how it defined your life and... Yeah. Tara and I can tell you what we make of it, and Tony. Well, can there, say are connections. <laughs> there are connections between Star Trek and 2001. Of course. Yeah, yeah, well, the yeah, motion, exactly. I, I get that the motion picture is heavily influenced by it. I've seen no. enough of it to like no. pick up on stuff, but I've Both never actually movies, watched it. Both uh, movies, visual effects were mm. done by Doug Trumbull. Yeah. 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 And who, who photographed, oddly enough, Discovery, which is mm. 2001: The Spaceship, um, which, in terms of a model. Um, which it was, uh, you know, mm. on, a, on a stage, was 60 feet long. And there's wow. one scene in 2001 where the, where the ship is just passing from left to right. Yeah. It took 24 hours to film oh it, my frame by frame by frame by frame. It's amazing. You know, and Doug Trumbull did that. And, and the Tree of Life. And Doug Trumbull filmed <laughs> the Enterprise leaving Space Dock. Yeah, that's that true. There's, there's oh, a good. T- there's a <laughs> <laughs> I thought you. Okay, let there's a little bit of. No, I love and hate it. Yeah, so that's fine. That's, that's, that's all right. That's I don't mind that. That's all right. We can <laughs> talk about that. A few teasers of future primitive cultures here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kudos to Nick Meyer. Yeah. What I wanted to say about Nick Meyer and Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan was that Nick changed Star Trek forever. He got an opportunity to direct a movie. He grabbed it by its neck and he did a fantastic job. There's no denying that. Mm. But in doing so, he changed the direction of Star Trek. He changed the direction of where this franchise would go indelibly and forever. He set about. He set a tone for the movie. Mm. He gave Starfleet a more militaristic aspect. He created uh, a whole ranking system of people that was never clearly defined in the original series. Uh, yes, people were referred to as commander or lieutenant or admiral, but it really wasn't uh, defined by ranking pins or uniform status until Nick Myers brought that in. Mm. And he brought in uh, an idea that uh, people could uh, perish during the course of their service in Starfleet and perish badly um, and there will be consequences. So Nick Meyer, I think, has to be applauded for what he did. Uh, in mm. Other people picked up the baton, but Nick Meyer set the bar and, and I think that bar has never been um, mm. exceeded. And also that our heroes could make mistakes. I mean, Kirk is a very fallible character in that film in a way that he wasn't really in the original series, you know, and we see that going forward. You know, we see that going through, you know, for example, in Cisco and Deep Space Nine doing kind of questionable things and struggling with it. Uh, you know, we certainly see that in Discovery, this idea that, um, you know, just because someone's in Starfleet doesn't mean that they're infallible, you know. Um, and I think really he had a big part in, in you know, realising the world of Star Trek in some ways, in bringing it you know, in, in tying it into our world in some ways, in sort of psychologically tying it into our world. And, you know, it's a big part of why it's, it's kind of strange, isn't it? If you look at the Next Generation TV series and the movies, you know, the, the movies seem quite shallow in a way, often compared to the TV series. With the original series, they seem quite deep. You know, there's a lot of character development, there's a lot of kind of... these. They feel like real people, and I think a lot of that stems from stuff that started in the Wrath of Khan, really. Yeah. Well, it's been great talking about the Wrath of Khan this evening. Um, but before we go, why don't you all tell our listeners where they can get hold of you, uh, or where they can listen to you on Track FM, and where they can get hold of you online? Um, let's start with you, Tony. Well, which Tony? Tony, not my yeah. Tony. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sorry. A tale of two Tonys. <laughs> yeah, well, Duncan, um, it's been an honour to be here and to discuss the Wrath of Khan with you here at the Prince Charles Theatre in uh, London. Prince Charles... Uh, Prince Charles... Yeah, I'm sorry, that was my fault. I, I went all American. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it's... it's That's it's what sorry. podcasting for Trek FM does. <laughs> I know, I know. 
Prince Charles Cinema here uh, just off Leicester Square in London. So fantastic. Uh, so apologies for all the noise you heard in the background, but that's just uh, we are in the depths of the cinema and people are coming in and going. I'm Tony Robinson. I'm the host of Continuing Mission. You can find me on the Babel Conference, uh, which is the Trek FM Facebook page. If you go to B-A-B-E-L uh, on Facebook, you'll find us. And please join us and join in the discussion. That'll be fantastic. And also, if you wish to find me on Twitter, I'm on Shamrock165. Um, uh, so yes, so thank you for inviting me. I really enjoy it. Um, so you can find me. Um, I'm podcasting for the Xcast podcast, which is a podcast, yeah, <laughs> which um, Tony does, um, and also writing for a website called Set the Tape, which is also a project of Tony's. Um, Clara just I- loves me. <laughs> <laughs> Are you on Tony's payroll now? <laughs> One day, living One day. in his <laughs> spare room. Um, and at, on Twitter at um, Clara Cook MC. And. You can find me on Twitter. Oh, I'm doing it like this voice. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, AJ Black Writer um, and Set the Tape at Set the Tape for my website, Set the Tape. And if you want to find my other podcast, The Xcast, just go and find the X underscore cast, all about the X Files. And if you want to contact me, you can find me on Twitter at Barrett's Books, that's B-A-R-R-E-T-T. Or if you want to read about my thoughts on Star Trek, there's a special Twitter account for my Star Trek book, Star Trek The Human Frontier, at Human Trek. And you can also find me, of course, as with all our other lovely hosts and friends on the Babel Conference. Well, it's been fun talking about director's cuts uh, in We're... Star Trek and beyond uh, this evening at Prince Charles Theatre in uh, London's Leicester Square. But that's not the only thing we've been talking about this week on Trek FM, so here's a listen to some of the other things you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, the 602 Club. I know, I, I went all in. <laughs> yeah, I think... Uh... If, I, if it came up short, I think there was going to be a lot of screen caps with a lot of people. I think even on podcasts, I've been throwing it all out. Oh, this is going to be one of the best. Trust me on this one. Yeah, Thor 2, ignore that. This one will be the, the bee's knees, as it were. So, yeah, there was a lot of pressure. Right? I don't think just on Marvel and Taiki Watiti, uh, but on me and myself with my, uh, my audacious claims. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. And with the final argument that he has with Burnham at the end of the episode, right, everywhere that Burnham is, she's taking away from him, and that's how he feels, right? We, we as the audience see it differently, but according to Saru, Burnham is always taking, 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 and destroying Saru's life by taking all this stuff. Meta treks. But it was 1977 that Kunzel went off and started recording with the Cincinnati Pops. And basically, the Cincinnati Pops and Eric Kunzel saved the Telarc record label back in the 80s when they recorded the 1812 Overture. And that was such a huge record, and classical records weren't doing so well back in the early 80s. Standard Orbit. I wonder how they combined the matter of the two of them. Is there a setting where it's just like combined or not combined? <laughs> You know, obviously, like, <laughs> obviously, it's that little blinking blue button that's kind of shaped like a warped skittle on the right side that does that. Oh, God, I'll, I'll look for that in those close-ups of not James Dewan's hands next time I watch the episode. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, 
So we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel Conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter, Duncan at Barrett's Books, and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media. And you can also find me hosting my own podcast, the Xcast and X-Files podcast, if you type that into Twitter and Facebook. So thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. Blended already. Oh, get everyone to introduce themselves, maybe. Or I can introduce them. Don't worry if it goes wrong, we'll release a director's cut later. It'll be twice as long. Twice as long. Actually, yeah. Extra picture. Yeah.